Good morning again. Um, the series of messages that we're in through Easter focuses on the, uh, the miracles recorded by John. And John calls them signs because they signify something important about Jesus. The first sign was the transformation of water into wine at the wedding in Cana, in which Jesus demonstrated his authority as creator to transform the old ceremonial washing water into the wine of new life. And then in John 4, Jesus, again in Cana, heals the official son who is in Capernaum, demonstrating both Jesus' transcendence outside the physical realm and his imminence or presence within it. John presents, presents these as signs or evidence of Jesus' divinity, as he says in John 20, 31, for this purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So today we'll look at the third miracle in John's narrative, the healing of the lame man. I'll read John 5, 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you. Sorry, the law pro forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This is the reading of God's word. Pray with me, please. 
Oh Lord, please grant that the preaching of your word will be a means of grace for your people. Let us see your goodness and glory this morning so that we too may believe ever more firmly that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may receive the fullness of life you offer. Amen. So this morning we'll look at this story in three parts, focusing on the three characters in the narrative. Jesus, the man, and the Jewish leaders. What did they do and why did they do it? First, let's look at what Jesus does. Well, to cut right to the chase, Jesus proves his divine lordship with two signs in one miracle, one miraculous healing. He tells the man to get up, pick up his mat and walk, and the invalid gets up and does it. So first, he shows he again shows that he is lord over human life, health, illness, and disease. He did that in the previous healing of the official son. Only God instantly cures and restores a man to health who hasn't walked for 38 years. And second, he shows that he is Lord over the Sabbath and by extension, the true fulfillment of the Sabbath and the law. He intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath to provoke a Sabbath controversy with the Jewish religious authorities. Now, the Sabbath controversy might seem trivial to us in some ways, but it would have felt momentous to a first century Jew. These Sabbath controversies appear in each of the Gospels for a reason, because Jesus wants to illuminate the true meaning of the Sabbath, as he wants to illuminate the true meaning of all the commands. He intends to show its true meaning. So that's why we read the words of Exodus 31 in our liturgy earlier. You hear the life and death seriousness of Sabbath observation to the Jewish people. This is a covenant obligation for the Jews. Whoever desecrates the Sabbath is to be put to death. Now, the Jewish religious leaders built rules around this. Initially, it would have been an earnest effort to protect people, right? But over time, it devolved into a means for the powerful to control the commoners. And for the powerful, these rules became a basis for moralistic self-justification. There's an external righteousness that comes from following these sets of rules. Religious people found a way to make man the Lord of the Sabbath. But Jesus shows them like the rest of the law The Sabbath really points to him. So how does that work? What's the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath? The Hebrew word is Shabbat, and it means cease or desist, stop. It's a day of holy rest from work that the Jews observed from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. It was first practiced actually in the desert right after the exodus of God's people from Egypt. The people complained about being hungry. In Exodus 16, we have this recorded. And God provided manna for them to eat. They were instructed to collect only enough manna to eat for that day. The remainder would rot overnight, except on the sixth day. 
On the sixth day, they're instructed to collect enough manna to eat for two days so that they would rest on the seventh day. And God preserved it overnight. God taught them in this practice that he will provide for his people. Exodus 20 records the giving of the fourth commandment, where Sabbath, link, or Sabbath is linked to God's rest on the seventh day of the creation week, his ceasing from creating. And Sabbath rest thus honors God as the creator by our ceasing from our labors to enjoy God. God who dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy 5, we have Sabbath linked additionally to the liberation of God's people from slavery or rest, their rest from slavery. God is honored as both redeemer and deliverer in this way. And then in Leviticus 23, Sabbath is called a festival, a day of sacred assembly. So Sabbath is this God-given ritual. It's a sign of covenant submission to God's rule and a sign of his kingdom authority over all of life. Jews observe the Sabbath as a practice of trusting in his provision and of bending their will to God. Jesus does not set the fourth commandment aside. Rather, he fulfills it. So what is the purpose of Sabbath again? To enjoy and experience union with God as our creator. That's Exodus 20. To remember his saving power and his deliverance from slavery. That's Deuteronomy 5. And to celebrate his provision in a sacred assembly with other believers, with other people he has called to be his own. That's Leviticus 23. Jesus comes in human flesh to do just that, so that we might experience deep and ultimately perfect union with God. He comes as Savior from sin, as Redeemer from slavery, and he comes to bring unity among the people of God whom he is calling his church. All of this is for God's glory and for human flourishing. And that is why he heals on the Sabbath, because it's part of human flourishing. Rabbis taught that God continues to work on the Sabbath. They knew this intuitively. God gives life. He sustains and governs his creation every day. Jesus knows this. And when he's challenged by the religious leaders, he says, yes, okay, I'm at work. What's the problem? My father is at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And the Jews scream, blasphemy! He makes himself equal to God. He calls God his own father. So what did Jesus do? He showed his lordship. He showed his authority over human life and over human flourishing, a sign of his lordship over the Sabbath, and by extension over the whole law of God in this miraculous healing of the lame man. 
And let's look at how these other characters reacted to that sign. What did the lame man do? Well, I'd say, in summary, he missed seeing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus asked this man a pointed question. Do you want to be healed? It's also translated, do you want to get well? I'll use those interchangeably as we go. But either one, it's a piercing question. Because one can be sick or unwell on many levels. What kind of wellness does Jesus have in mind? Physical wellness? Mental wellness? Spiritual? Emotional? Relational health? The man's response is ambivalent. It's evasive. It's maybe defensive. Fearful, self-justifying. Rather than answering the question, he explains to Jesus why he can't get well. My only route to healing requires me to be the first one to get into this magical and unpredictable stirring of the waters. That's the only way I can get healed. And no one will help me. No one helps me get into the pool on time. Others rush in and take that that chance, that, that thing that I need. There are three elements to the complaint, right? There's a difficulty I face. It's too great. I have no one to help me. And others take advantage of my weakness. His eyes are on himself. He's looking at his weakness, his fears, his inadequacies, not on Jesus. If he could turn his eyes toward Jesus and recognize the healing power of the one before him, he would not be afraid. That's the movement of faith. Turn your eyes from yourself and look to Jesus. The right answer, of course, is for him to say, yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. I want to get well. But we humans are complicated. And often we're unable to see or even face up to our true needs. And certainly not to be honest with others about what our needs are. Even if we do see our need, our feelings of shame and worthlessness, our fear of failure, they often keep us from seeking real change and healing and wellness through Jesus. It's a good time to ask yourself, where might I be ambivalent about getting well? Where do I justify my disability or disguise my need? Well, despite the man's ambivalence, Jesus heals him instantly. And then when the Jewish leaders see him carrying his mat and accuse him of violating the law, he just points the finger at the guy who healed him. So Jesus finds him at the temple and says, I'm going to give you another chance. I want you to truly repent. He says, you're well. See, you're well. But I want you to get well on a deeper level. On the next level, he calls him to spiritual repentance. But we have no indication that the man turns to Jesus 
in faith or obedience. Instead, he rats him out to the authorities again. So when I was 17, I didn't really want to be healed either. I was ambivalent about it, but God's grace overcame my ambivalence to faith. And I started to walk with God. And then after college, I wandered away. And the persistent grace of God again overcame my resistance. And then I thought all was good for a while. I focused on my new marriage and family and work and career. And after a little while, some friction arose in that. And it showed me that I needed to be healed again in some areas. And that has happened over and over and over again. Each time I resist at first. The problem's too great. There's no one to help me. Others are better equipped to do this than me. I'm afraid to deal with it because I've failed in the past or I'm ashamed of myself. How could I still be so self-centered? Here's a question to think about. How many times do you need to be healed in a life with Christ? And when he asked, do you want to get well? What does it take to answer, yes, Jesus, I want to get well? I believe it requires the grace of God in you to produce an honest recognition of your need. Even the desperation that we have. And it requires humility to see that we don't have the answers. That in ourselves, we don't have this. Only Jesus does. And it requires a repentant spirit yielded to Jesus as Lord. Even with a new heart and a new spirit as born-again children of God, we still carry this mortal body and its inclination to sin and failure. Life with Christ is one of continual repentance. We are never too old to be healed by Jesus. I don't care how crusty you feel. You're not too old to receive the grace of God to deliver you from sin and misery. Not at 90 or 70 or 50 or 30 or 10. If you're in Christ, you can be sure that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, keeps coming back to you and asking if you want to get well. Because he wants to make you well and whole. Don't be afraid. Don't miss him. He's Lord over life and health and well-being and flourishing. Well, what about the Jewish leaders? They're the third characters, right? How do they respond? Well, they miss Jesus as Lord, as Lord of the Sabbath and as fulfillment of the law. They misjudged the situation entirely. As the keepers of right and wrong in their culture, they trusted their instincts, they trusted their judgment, and as far as they knew, the world was working just fine for them until Jesus showed up and messed everything up. Carrying one's mat on the Sabbath is not prohibited in the law of God. But it fell into one of the 39 categories of prohibited activities in the rabbinical 
interpretations of the fourth commandment. See, men use law to justify themselves and to bind others. The Sabbath, however, was given to man by the love of God. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says in Mark 2.27. Indeed, rather than binding and restricting men, the Sabbath was given to men to set them free from endless labor and striving. One day a week, mankind rests from their labor. On this day given to remember and worship God and to celebrate his goodness and provision for his people. Of course healing is permitted on the Sabbath. Of course it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. But they misjudged Jesus entirely. They were ignorant. Their judgment was distorted by their accepted truth about God, by their traditions. They were blinded by the traditions of men. They didn't know what they didn't know. And closely related is the influence of pride. See, ignorance is magnified by pride. They were confident they knew how God would do things. Healing on the Sabbath and telling a man to break a commandment could not be of God. And finally, their judgment was distorted by self-will, by a will to hold authority and power and their desire to be right. They wanted to justify themselves. So what do you get with this combination of ignorance and pride and self-will? Human beings. It's every one of us, right? At some time or another, every one of us falls in that category. So the route to seeing Jesus runs through humility, through honestly questioning my own long-accepted assumptions about God and his ways, and through submission to the Holy Spirit's instruction through the word. See, we're all prone to trust in our traditions and our views about the way the world works and the way things should be. And when we align with a certain set of rules and traditions, we find our comfortable place and stay there. So, an easy way to start thinking about this is to say in the 1950s, there were prohibitions in the church, right, about alcohol and smoking and playing cards and dancing. And they're, they're caricatures now, right? But following those rules promoted a sense of self-worth and righteousness among Christians, right? You could feel good about yourself because you were accepted and respected by the people around you. Meanwhile, some of those same people might have casually accepted that Blacks should ride in the back of the bus. Something's wrong with that, right? Let's, let's pay attention to the little things and missing the big things. But they didn't know what they didn't know. Well, that's not us today, we say. But we have our own blind spots. Where's our ignorance and our pride and our self-will 
distort the values of the kingdom of God. I don't know. I mean, there, there are probably lots of areas, but one is politics. Christians in America have often aligned themselves with these political positions or movements or candidates with a fervor that far exceeds their fervor for the kingdom of God. Christians will leave churches. They'll condemn other believers as apostates and dishonor the body of Christ over political views. If you're a brother and sister of Christ, I don't care whether you're conservative or liberal or somewhere in between or don't care. If Jesus is first in your heart and first in my heart, we have far more in common than what divides us. So the lame man missed Jesus because he felt too bad about himself. And he gave in to fear. And the Jewish leaders missed Jesus because they felt too good about themselves. And they closed up their ears. We who worship Jesus in the church today openly profess our faith in Jesus as Lord. In that sense, the author's primary purpose is already fulfilled. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But I want you to think about faith more like a dimmer switch than an on-off toggle switch. Okay? Every one of us has areas of disbelief in our life where we could turn up the dial and trust Jesus more. We have areas where our faith is weak, our trust is small, where Jesus isn't really effectively Lord in our life. In what ways do we still not believe Jesus is who he says he is? If you're called to follow Christ, you have already heard him ask the question at least once, do you want to get well? And you answered, yes, Lord, I want to get well. That's how we are saved. But like me, you've maybe also heard his correction. See, you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus never stops asking the question, do you want to get well? You can hear it. If you're not so ashamed of yourself that you disguise that need or explain it away in some way. You can hear it if you're not too proud and willful like the Jewish leaders. Do you want to get well? It's a legitimate question because sometimes staying where you are seems a lot easier. There's a uh, preacher named Barbara Brown Taylor who, who asked this question. She says, how will we have it? You can stay where we are you can stay where you are. Stay with what is familiar, where all the edges are rounded off so you won't hurt yourself, where you need only concern yourself with what's in your reach. You don't want to make a spectacle of yourself, after all, getting up. And walking probably won't work anyway. No sense in getting your hopes up. Stay with what's familiar, with what you know. Or you can spring up, cry out, and ask for your heart's desire. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Good riddance to caution, to propriety, 
to the fear that keeps you down and keeps you where you are. Are you willing to walk or not? That's what Jesus was asking the lame man. People of God, all creation holds its breath, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, to demonstrate the healing grace of Jesus through liberation from sin into the flourishing freedom and glory of life with God, into Sabbath rest with God. Jesus declares today and every day that he is the way to healing and the ultimate Sabbath rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our hope for healing and wellness and rest and flourishing. As we come to your table today to participate in your body and blood given for us, fill us with your grace, we pray. Make us holy and humble by your work in us for the sake of your glory. And all God's people say, amen.